Good morning, afternoon, evening, everyone. I'm Dr. J, and welcome to the Strategic Ladies Mindful Media Show. Our show is going to give you guys applicable, useful, and entertaining relationship conversations, and always with a generational perspective. We're airing live on Thursdays from the Netherlands at 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 1 p.m. CST, 2 p.m. EST, and I'm sorry, that's 8 p.m. CST. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. My name is Dr. E. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our Mindful Media Journal, where you can keep your mind, body, and spirit aligned. You can also find an invitation to sign up for that and learn about everything and all of our guests on www.strategicladies.com. So, how are you, Dr. J? I'm doing good, Dr. E. It's a beautiful day in the Netherlands. The sun is shining. It's really warm, very hot. It's it's reminding me of like a hot, hot day in California. So I am happy, happy, happy. And it's almost Friday. So that's the best thing about it. How about you? It's the wonderful name in the neighborhood. Want you be my neighbor? That's what you may be. Mr. Rogers? Mr. Rogers. <laughs> I'm putting on my sweater right now. No, just kidding. Girl. Um, you know, I didn't ever saw the documentary that was out on him. I, I, I was at the movie. Hopefully it was positive things. I know. Hopefully, I know I that's one of the reasons I want to have that same image of yeah. Mr. Rogers being a nice guy. Um, so it's a really beautiful day. The sun is shining. The butterflies are out. I know, um, right? So the flowers are blooming. And it's just really, really pretty here. And um, yeah, and I've got a new hairdo. You know, oh yeah, I my, da- my daughter hooked me up with a new hairdo, so I got I know. my uh, my dreads on represent. So I know, I'm like multi, multi. You know, it's like we got we we we're, we've been hicking each other up so far. <laughs> so um, so uh, but I'm doing good today. Good, good. So um, uh, interesting today we're gonna have um, you know we're both in academia and we thought right. we'd change or you know we have a lot of entertainment on but we thought we'd change it up a little bit and bring on um associate professor dr johnson uh, on on um and to talk about uh, i think a subject that's really timely with all this going on and that's back black masculinity and as you know there's so much going on in the media when, when in concerning this and and we don't do this to to cause confusion but to bridge gaps Correct. You know, that's what we did in our study. And I think this this conversation will help do that. I agree completely. But, um, but you know, what, what have you been doing before we bring him on and talk about all that he's going to talk about? Anything going on in relationships that you've seen in in, in, in um, our work that's entertaining to tell people? There's there's a couple of things. That... Well, why don't you start it off? <laughs> <laughs> well, interesting enough, we've had some really interesting relationships. I don't know if it's the moon or the 
the uh, change in the weather, but, you know, just really difficult relationships when it comes to emotional things. Mm. A lot of people haven't been, you know, in control of their emotions. And um, Oh, yes. Yes. Um, you know, in, in, uh, in all types of relationships, I think it, it may be a mood sequence. I think that um, in, in all, all things, you find that at, at sometimes you have to find a point where if the relationship's worth holding on to. And I, and I've had a couple of people that have come to me with, with just questions, just friends and different people and talking about situations. And it's like, sometimes you have to find a point where, where it's enough enough for you. And, you know, I've been there where it's like, you just have to, you've tried, you have to let go of some, even friendships. So, um, yeah. And it's, 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 yeah, it it, it may be the moon. It may be the turn of the year. It may be, Mm -hmm. I, I always look at it like, Sometimes it could be a sad but a positive thing toward the end. I like to tell them, and I think I have been telling a lot of people, you know, we do a lot of our things through Skype and and online, but I tell them, you know, it's kind of like spring cleaning. You know, now we're ready for the summer, and it's like a refresh and renew and and, and start doing some things. So if anyone's out there, you know, any of our listeners or any of our um, people that have have been going through anything, feel free to call and ask us questions because there's a lot going on, and and if you, if, if you feel this way, there's so many positive things that can happen um, to replace that negative feeling you're feeling. I, I love to ask Dr. J. Kong, if you haven't ever had a chance to read it, I mean, God, she gives some great advice. Thank you, Dr. And then, and then of course, there's me, the mindful Dr. E, who's, who loves to just um, meditate and have you go through that sequence. And also gives great advice. So, yeah. so I'm excited about our topic because it's something I feel that we've not really touched on. And it's definitely something that is an eye opener, especially with the, the guests that we're having on. It's just really amazing person has so much to share. I'm very excited about this topic. Well, you know, one of the things that I'm interested in, I know he's talking about black masculinity when it comes to mm-hmm. males um, and black faith. I mean, not black faith, but when it comes to males. And I'd love to see how um that affects relationships with women yes because if if there's this um you know things that are happening within the black male that's preventing him from truly being what he was designed to be then of course it's going to reflect on a relationship he gets in it's just like when we're having um issues um within ourselves and you know, it affects our relationships. Right. And, and also I, I think that this would be a good topic. Uh, it's going to be an interesting topic that can cause a lot of, um, discussion. Right. Um, because we, we, we may have different seeing views and, and I really want to see what this topic is about. When you brought this about, I was like, wow, what is the true black masculinity and black faith? What's that all about? Right. Right. Well, interesting enough too. We have we are we have young black men we're raising, right? Excuse me, we have young you have a young yes, black man that you're raising, definitely. You know, um, and we have uh, we want to make sure that um, we can do everything in our power, and just like every mother. I think in every mother, no matter what race you wants to do, make sure they raise their kids up to be um, successful, happy, and right. good citizens, and and uh, the only way to do that is to make sure they're grounded. Exactly. And this is probably going to do that. So exactly. it's interesting to talk about. It. One of the things I love, um, and we'll talk more about uh, Dr. T, or Dr. I don't know, I have to figure out what to call Dr. T. I want to call him Dr. T, Dr. T. Johnson. 
Um, he's got, got a lot of accolades, and I think he he. he um, I love the fact that he was, um, you know, he's a professor. We know that. We know that. We know <laughs> no, how it is. Well, we know how it is to be a professor. Right? It, it's, it is not. It can, it's, yeah, it's can be. It's so funny because as a professor, depending on the university you work for, right? Um, it's either all about the students or sometimes they're all behind the professors. And a lot of times you want to be, most professors want to be an excellent professor. And it's, it's kind of a battle of, um, dealing with several personalities and, and presenting the information, um, as good as you can so that you can get those people acquainted yeah, with the Yeah, I think it's also hard to, uh, one of the things I know he, he, he does this, uh, he talks about, mm-hmm. you know, having African studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and be, that's uh, to be in, you know, that's, that's a lot to know also, as well. I mean, you have to be. Yeah. Brilliant. To be able to get someone. I, I, I salute, uh, California State University of Fresno for even, um, uh, being able to acknowledge ne- needing that, mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of the universities, um, uh, now it seems like the new umbrella of diversity doesn't really hit on every ethnicity or every race. It kind of just, you know, there are new um, categories of ethnicity that weed uh, some out and bring others in. You know what I mean? Right. And um, so I think that the fact that, that, you know, African studies is important. I think it's important. And, and you know, there's so much. I was talking to um, a friend of mine. How much of the, these countries in Africa too are developing and growing, and and there's a whole uh, transition that's happening across the world. So people need to understand different people and understand where they're coming from, and understand how to you know bring people the best out of people. Right, right. So it's interesting. I agree. Yeah. So what one of the things we did, we pulled a article from the um, uh, the uh, Huffington Post, Correct. and they interviewed. Uh, a, Emmy Award-winning artist and pastor uh, uh, Julian J.K. West, West. Mm-hmm. and um, and I'd love to ask uh, uh, Dr. T. Dr. T. about this article because he talked about um, that regardless of race, there's a lot of commentary going on about um, uh, what's going on with black uh, black men, and but there's not a lot of listening going on. And people never try to really learn about the experiences of a black man mm-hmm. in this country. And he's talking about the U.S. And um, I know my overseas family and the listeners, but we're talking about in the U.S. He talked about it. And that's true. You know, we talk about listening all the time. People aren't listening. They're just talking. Well, the thing about I think that now because um a lot of our cult our culture as african americans is 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 um you know there's this all this talk about appropriation so much and um of how things uh of like you know are some of the things that are actually rooted to us like our hair or our facial features and things of that sort and and, and some of our slangs and some of the things that we do are being utilized by different ethnicities um, it, it comes to a point where sometimes people misconstrue what is appropriate for them um, and don't necessarily understand how um, things can be misinterpreted when they try to be or um, 
or integrate integrate into, into the black society because um and and I think that that's uh, a a lot of the problem now because the younger crowds you know just with the the n word you know I found that my daughter has a lot of issues with that that people feel like oh because we're cool they can do that and um no no you can't it, even though you're cool you know there's a there's a line where it, it's funny I, it, it the odd thing is is that and this is a whole different topic but it's it's funny how sometimes you're more understanding of people that say it that have lived in those particular certs like in um the hood or you know that they've grown up and understand um but when you're not from there and you don't really understand and just have maybe dated somebody outside of your race doesn't mean that you can really use those yeah. terminologies you know so yeah well terminologies is a thing i'm sure we're going to discuss too it's right. like and how um but but i think one of the the, the scary parts is the decorate the degrading and the right. uh, the, the the destroying of them the the black male and what what are in in the how they're acting out because of it you know Mm -hmm. um and um and and i think this i think dr t is going to bring up the whole historical perspective on that And, and i think one of the things that again to me it takes uh listening and understanding what's really going on and really caring about the experience. Mm-hmm. But they don't seem to care a lot of people don't seem to care about the experience, they're just talking about it. Exactly. Well you know, Doctor, you hold that thought. You guys, we're gonna be back in a moment. Please feel free to call in and join the conversation at three one zero nine two eight three three. Again that's three one zero nine two eight seven seven three three. We'll be back in a moment.
Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Strategic Blaze Radio Show. We are airing live in the Netherlands on yeah. Thursday. You can call in and join the conversation at 310-928-7733. Again, 310-928-7733. So I want to, uh, we're uh, fortunate and lucky and blessed to have a special guest today, his name is Dr. T. Johnson. He's an associate professor of African studies at Cal State University, Fresno. He founded numerous Fresno State programs, including the African Studies Online Teleconference, the Onyx Black Male Film Festival, and the Black Popular Culture Lecture Series, to name a few. He was also conferred the Pauvers Award for promising new faculty and received a lecture series award in 2013 and was also awarded the prestigious Ford Dissertation University wow. Fellowship in 2006. And we can relate to the dissertation. So you, you know what? what? Well, if you, you want, want to award for your award, dissertation, kudos to yes. you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Deserve it. Because yes, yes, just yes. doing the dissertation was enough. Because it's never, oh. never enough. It's never enough. Because <laughs> it's not all your work. And you oh, want my goodness. <laughs> and it, can, it can be such a traumatizing experience that mo- a lot of people I know never open their dissertations again after they're done with it. Hopefully, <laughs> I, I can count the times that I have. Well, you know, exactly. I have because I wrote a book on it. Well, that's what I said. I can count the times. <laughs> like I <Right>. said, <laughs> so right. today, mine today. is sitting on my shelf right here, and I can't open it. The memories. I know. You guys have this experience, an experience on uh, a lot of things. Yes. But thank you, Dr. Johnson, for joining us. And, and Dr. Johnson, is there anything that you wanted to elaborate about any of your, your accolades that we, did, we didn't touch on? Well, um, I think in the last seven years, a lot of my work shifted into black men. Uh, I think some of the things you were talking about from dissertation to the new faculty award, you know, it's one of those things you, you, you go to grad school, especially if you know you want to teach, you go into teaching if you can find a position and you kind of it really takes a while before you find your footing in terms of what it is you really want to do. So the early part of my academic career was was actually I was dealing with hip hop, but you can always kind of sense where you're going, especially when you look backwards. You can see the road to, you know, the kind of work you end up doing. Uh, you've mm-hmm. really been doing it the whole time. It's just been veiled with other distracting kind of things. So I was dealing with hip hop. But even in the midst of that, I was looking at black men and uh, really black males across age. And and so my work has all been gravitating toward that, um, you know, e- even from the grad school kind of stage of it. I just didn't know it. And so it was really about, I'd say about seven years ago at this point, six or seven years ago, that I really began to shift into doing work on black males. Um, and that's kind of what I've been focused on since. Okay. So tell us a little bit about your involvement with hip hop, because we have a lot of hip hop artists that come on. Um, they t- they brought, to get, uh, brought a lot of perspectives that people wouldn't think, like, you know, how hip hop is changing, how the grassroots hip hop is not there anymore and how they're trying to bring it back and mm-hmm. how, you know, that it's it's about the heritage and, and environment and all these things that are being kind of lost and what's being shown now. So tell me a little bit about your work uh, in hip hop. Well, when I when I it started in graduate school, now I've always been a hip hop head. I was born 
in the hip hop era. Matter of fact, I was born in Brooklyn, New York in, 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 you know, the early seventies. So I came up with hip hop. And by the time I reached high school, I was, you know, definitely tied into it very heavily contemplated being an artist, like so many other black males, my age. Um, but by the, so by the time I got to graduate school, I got invited to write, a a couple of chapters on hip hop. One was for an hip hop encyclopedia and it was about the group outcast. And so um, I ended up saying a lot more than I thought I would about a number of different areas. And once I did that and that became part of my publication record, I got hired uh, here at Fresno state because the professor who was teaching hip hop had transitioned to another location. So that was one of the main points that they hired me for. Um, but from there, you know, so I've been teaching hip hop every year since then, and I really began to tie it into structural issues, history, sociology, politics, you know, world events, you know, um, and of course, black men and gender and, and as a whole. So I, that that's kind of how that whole narrative happened. It started with one article in graduate school, and then it became about how that placed me in a lot of different areas um, in regard to that. So my question for you is, what do you feel? It sounds that Fresno State was very open to diversity. What do you attribute that to? What do you believe? Uh, to be honest, I think Fresno really was trying to compete, you know, because at the end of the day, um, you know, Fresno is not the first place people think of in regard to California. You know, you think of L.A., you think of San Francisco. Fresno is in the middle of the state. Three and a half hours away from each. It's a it's a really big small town, and it's about a four percent black population. And so, what Fresno State had to do to compete to get faculty to come and stay here, they did all kinds of things to make it attractive, um, as well as I would argue being open enough opened up to diversity to some extent. A lot of that came from just really how do we compete with the other universities out there, you know, considering that. Nobody really wants to move to Fresno. <clears throat> so Fresno has a lower cost of living. It has all these other things that, that should be attractive, but, you know, they had to kind of up it in terms of competing. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, well, you know, I'm glad that happened because I know a lot of people that don't have to compete are not as open to it. And I think it's, uh, you know, one of the things that happened when we were working on our doctor, we had um, a, a conversation about, diversity and it went to a uh, cry session and it went just totally um, everyone lost perspectives everyone lost yeah. lost yeah. and and that conversation needs to happen you know because sure. it's, you got to face it you can't run away from it and I think all it was surprising to me that doctor students had had not had that conversation mm-hmm. well but, it, one other thing I could say that Fresno State did to compete was something that would inevitably attract people of color. And that is they gave you a contract the first semester of your first year that said that as long as you do these things on this list in six years, you are guaranteed tenure. Even if we hate your guts and we don't like what you're talking about, as long as you do these things, you had to, you know, you had to give a certain number of lectures at the state, the local and the national, international level. You had to write so many papers, but they told you that up front and you were guaranteed tenure So, you know, that I mean, who's going to turn that down, especially if you're a black scholar and, you know, the majority of people going into education are adjuncts. They're not getting full time positions. They're living class to class. You know, you got professors who are homeless, but they're teaching at elite universities. 
you know, it, so if Fresno State offers you that kind of deal, what are you going to say? I mean, so. I think that's wonderful. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, I, I, I think education first, always for me. So, uh, but, uh, so I think that um, education first. I think it's so important. Mm-hmm. So, so um, let's talk a little bit about this this concept of black masculinity. Yes. Um, and uh, I don't know if you were listening at the top of the hour, but we, we uh, you know, we did pull some articles, and there was one interesting one on Huffington Post that talked about uh, this uh, Reverend Julian Julian West. Um, he talked about. Um, uh, how, it's from the University of Chicago. Yeah, and he talked about how there were a lots of people, a lot of commentaries on what's going on with the black male, but no one wants to listen, especially in, in the United States. So I was wondering uh, if you had a perspective. First of all, before I even ask that question, tell me a little bit about what you do with black masculinity. Let's start there. Okay. Well, um, I was trained in graduate school, especially for my doctorate as a feminist. I was trained by a uh, scholar uh, uh, named uh, Dr. Phyllis Jackson at the Claremont Colleges, uh, former Black Panther, uh, ardent Black feminist. And that was my initial training and introduction to gender. Um, so by the time I started here, I started um, teaching from a Black feminist standpoint. And I was able to, you know, kind of reintroduce a, a class on black males. Now, again, I'm doing hip hop at this time. So I'm also bringing artists like KRS-One and Chuck D and, um, you know, uh, X-Clan and, you know, uh, it, it, uh, just all kinds of, of artists from especially from the classic hip hop era of the 80s. Uh, cool Modi. You know, I, I started bringing these gentlemen to the campus um because I really wanted to, you know, I wanted students to hear what they had to say. And then I broadened that up into other areas. Uh, I brought Delroy Lindo. I brought, uh, oh, my goodness, I can't believe I'm blanking on the pastor's name. He was Obama's pastor, Jeremiah Wright. Brought him to the campus as well. Anyway, uh, so I'm doing those kinds of projects on the campus while teaching hip hop and starting a black male course. And one of the things I noticed, you know, was that, you know, when I started teaching, the classes were usually filled with women who were very curious about what was going on with black males, but they were also kind of invested in, you know, kind of a hand slapping dynamic. In other words, as a black feminist professor, I'm basically teaching a class on black men that started out to be kind of punitive, like black men would come to the class and I would kind of slap their hand for things and black women would kind of applaud. And over time, I got to notice the dynamics. Black males stopped taking the class. They were filled with black women. And it became a session about what everybody didn't like about black men. And, you know, I noticed at a particular point that that was that was shifting. And I began to kind of question how my training contributed to that. Because I realized I didn't actually know how to talk about black men outside of that in an academic context because I was trained as a feminist. And that was the only way black men were principally discussed as a problem or a detriment to women, particularly black women. So I began to kind of question that. And um, I moved from there to, you know, starting an organization on the campus for black males called uh, Onyx, uh, the Onyx Black Male Collective. And and we began to have conversations off the books, you know, in terms of what young black males wanted to know, needed to know. Um, and that changed my dynamic. So a lot of the work I do now with gender is really about humanizing black men, even to themselves. Um, 
And that's kind of, I, I would say, the best summation of what I try to do with my work in general, with the concept of black masculinism. It's really to center black males across age and across context, but also humanize them. You know, whether innocent, guilty, right, wrong, it, it doesn't really matter. We don't have a problem humanizing other groups of people. But when it comes to black males, we have to remain the perennial monster or criminal that needs to be constantly chastised and punished and dismissed. And and I think there's a human element that's long since been missing. And I don't think it's accidental, but that's what my work really focuses on. I love that. And I think that it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that dehumanizing uh, was something that black women were doing because of, of some of the, the situations they, they were in with black males. Um, it's because I think that it, it sounds like in your course, it became a, a witch set, witch hunt mm-hmm. based mm-hmm. on um, this. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but I just seems like I, I, I hear it myself um, buying into what they, what they hear and, and taking that and running with it. Oh, and, and and it was definitely it was definitely that. But I can tell you when I started to shift, the reaction was palpable. Um, I taught classes. Uh, I continued to teach classes at the Claremont University, uh, Claremont uh, uh, Colleges in Southern California um, from time to time. And the last time I did, I taught an introduction class into Africana studies. So at one, you know, so we're covering the introduction. So we're looking at religion. We're looking at the origin of the field. We're looking at, you know, black psychology, black sociologists, you know, kind of giving them a sample platter of Africana studies. And we get to gender. And so what I do is I start with black feminism. Right. And then, you know, so they love that. And the class is, you know, three quarters, a little more than three quarters black women. There are a handful of black males and then a couple of others. So they like black feminism. I had a colleague come in and Skype and she gave a lecture on black womanism, which had a slightly different orientation uh, and a different relationship and critique of, of the black family and black men. But but definitely less less negative in regard to black men. The young women in the class were a little put off by that. But because it wasn't me, I think they were really they were able to kind of digest it a little more now. I'm still at this point developing the concept of black masculinism, so I hadn't introduced it. All I did was give them statistics on black males. I gave them statistics on circumcision. I gave them statistics on homelessness, life expectancy, uh, poverty, cancer rates, HIV rates. I just presented data saying this is the state of black males. The first response was to try to get me fired. That was the first response. The first response they had, they organized, they went to the chair of the department, then they went to the dean and tried to get me fired because they said what I was doing was inherently sexist and misogynist. In other words, shifting from black women as the center of discussion in the context of gender was was seen as heresy. So, So gender, especially in the academy, is synonymous with women and girls. And to actually apply gender to males of any age was seen as heresy based. And I, that had a lot to do with how they've been just like me, how they were introduced to gender studies. It was only supposed to include women and girls. So that was their first first response was to try and get me fired. The dean threatened to do so until I invoked Title IX in regard to men. And she backed off. And then the te- the students tried to say that I was scary 
you know, but they couldn't cite any incidents where I did anything to anybody. So that's when I began to talk to men also, especially in the academy, about how sexual harassment works for black males and how it's a little different. You know, whereas we think of sexual harassment as somebody maybe grabbing you or making an inappropriate joke or, you know, or touching your body in some kind of way, uh, and, you know, God forbid, rape. But for black males, sometimes it can present in a different way. If you're afraid of me because my race and my sex, that may be a problem that we can we can look at in, the, in that context in terms of harassment. If if you invoke stereotypes about black males as a rationale for treating me differently. Right. Stereotypes, especially associated with criminality, violence and sexual violence, without there being any incident of any such behavior that can very well be argued as a form of sexual harassment covered by Title IX. And so I put some of that documentation in my blog and I had men writing me from around the world, black men, Europe, Africa and definitely in the U.S. saying I've experienced this, but I never classified it as sexual harassment. I thought that only happened to women. So let me ask you this. Let me stop you right there. So now that is actually in the laws or is that just um, something they could that they could actually put into law? What does the law say about those things you just mentioned? It's it's actually really interesting. If you study Title Nine, it's it's actually it's written, you know, really, you know, for women. There's no question about that. Women were the ones that that were about the around the activism of that, that pushed for that. So it's definitely motivated by uh, a protection of women of sorts. But the language in many instances is somewhat gender neutral because, you know, so they'll, they instead of saying you cannot treat women in a, in a discriminatory manner, it will say you cannot discriminate on the basis of sex. You know what I mean? And because of that language, it is already open to men. But the problem is, one, the culture around sexual harassment has never been one that has really made itself available to men because yeah. the, the assumption we make culturally is that men don't suffer from it. Right, but what, right. what, what people yeah. misunderstand is that black men are not white men. Now, there's an argument to be made for white men, and they're making it in, ter- in terms of men's rights circles, and they have some interesting points. But black men live a very different life. Mm-hmm. So – So when you actually begin, and this is where I I go with black masculinism, by centering men, when you actually place men in the black men in the center of the discussion and begin to perceive their experiences from a black male standpoint, you actually find that a lot of these laws apply to them. It just has to be shifted a bit. So like I said, you know, if we if most people interpret sexual harassment to be what women experience, you actually have to ask the question, well, do men experience it? And if they do, is it different? You know, and, and that's that becomes the problem. If most people can't perceive a black male being chased down an alley with a knife, being a rape victim, if, the, if people say, well, that doesn't happen. Well, then you, you, people don't think about rape and black males. But if you actually study what black males are talking about, you can say, oh, OK, black men do get raped, but it may not be the way we conceptualize it based on Hollywood, you know, in terms of how women experience it. And if we open that up to really look at how men experience it, now we can have a cogent conversation about that dynamic. You know, you, you bring up really, really good points. And, 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 and I, I totally agree with you. I think that this, um, and me being a, a female and a black female, you know, I have, and, and an older one with wisdom, I have mm. seen uh, reverse discrimination toward males. Oh, I've so. been in a situation Amen. where I'm, where I'm, uh, where in, even in hiring principles, you know, 
in corporate America, even in mm. situations where inappropriate things were said to men. Um, and I and I also I have seen it really in black men because of the stereotypes and the stereotypes um, are. But that's just tossed away. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just it's not it's overlooked. Mm-hmm. So you've got some interesting points on that. Well, have you have you either one of you had a chance to watch Ava DuVernay's When They See Us on Netflix? You know, I'm getting ready to. I just looked at that. I was getting ready to put it. I'll put it on. Yeah, uh, that's the one. Everybody tells me that they got so emotional seeing. It. I'm not sure if I can watch it. I know. I I want to watch it, but yeah, I have to. No, it's definitely jarring, and and that's something ironic to think about in and of itself. If it's so traumatic to watch, how much more traumatic was it to live? In terms of the Central Park Five, but but where it goes from there is how prevalent this is for black males across the board, especially those who didn't get a film, who didn't, you know, win in in the court and have millions. And, you know, there are plenty of black men who have experienced very similar things. Um, And and I mean that even even when guilty, The, the, the idea that that people can more readily accept black guilt in regard to, you know, rape or whatever and not accept it in other terms further kind of stigmatizes black males. So by the time you get to innocent black males, there's no consideration for that. But I won't give away anything because I want you all to watch it, but it, it puts in your face how how black males experience the, the stereotypes that have long been prevalent about them. Now, I have a 13-year-old son. So when I sat him down to watch this, I'm letting, I'm reminding him the entire time, these young boys are your age. And so when you get a chance to watch it, especially as you said, you have sons, you know, remind them this is happening to boys your age. This is not, you know, something happening to some grown men. They were kids, 13 through 15, really, like they were kids. And and so the, the, the comfort by which people could see those kids as dangerous threats is exactly what's been happening in public perception in regard to black males really since the end of slavery. You know, the idea that we are threatening, we are dangerous. And because of that, statistics show that most people, especially white teachers, you know, who constitute over 80 percent of the teaching in America, and especially in the public school system, perceive black males to be older than they are, starting at around age five. Uh, You know, it is interesting you say that because we were talking about this. Remember when uh, Nicholas uh, was in school and the lady, uh, they, they were saying how in a classroom, they they notice they stare at the people of color, yes. but they don't stare. Their attention is not focused on other kids. Right. So they're even started when it comes to who they're going to pay attention to. Right. Statistics. Absolutely. It's Absolutely. like so statistically, yeah. I'm watching you because of your color, mm-hmm. and I'm watching you because you're different. And, Absolutely. Um, and so that whole thing starts off with this perception. It builds on that. Well, that, that. And it, the sad part about it is, see, I was blessed enough and my kids are blessed enough for with a parent that will fight for them. But mm-hmm. I for the parents that are able to get there to fight for their children. Absolutely. I was going to, I was just going to, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I've already ex- had to fight so much in school. I'm like, God, school should be about learning, but I am fighting racial wars all the time yes mm-hmm. and i'm so sick of it mm-hmm. but it has to be done so that they're treated fairly absolutely um, and the sad part is that they they i have taught them that 
you know what? Sometimes you have to try harder because well, you are where are where are you know what? I'm sorry, but to be honest with you, the the lesson we teach them right away is that you're black. Right. Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. black. You are different. You mm-hmm. have to be more because of that. Right. Because you know, so that, you sometimes credit that, that you deserve. Yeah, it. that conversation doesn't happen with regular families. Okay. Mm-hmm. But you were going to say, go I'm ahead. Sorry, go you ahead. were going to say. Well, no, I, I, I was going to say I, I've experienced the same thing. I'm a single father. You know, I've had my you, you raised my son. You know, I'm, I'm a widower. My wife passed when I was when he was about four. And so he started kindergarten the, the year after. Now, the blessing with me is, as you know, as faculty, I really only have to be on campus twice a week. So I can sit in the classroom, which is something, as you pointed out, a lot of parents don't have the time to do. You know, and one of the things I noticed, even in kindergarten, by the second week of school, they wanted to have him in special education, which, you know, for black males is a constant. Mm -hmm. You know, they wanted to put him in special education, even though by the. Oh, go ahead. It's a label. Absolutely. Right away. But it's, it's a label that impacts them for the rest of their entire education. Right. In terms of the classes they can get in, how competitive they can be for college, all of that. And it started as early as the second week of kindergarten, even though this boy by first grade read Harry Potter. You know, if you, I think that was like 700 pages. He read it himself. You know what I mean? But to them, they didn't see academic or intellectual potential. They saw a black boy that they didn't that whose whose behavior they didn't understand. So they the, one of the earliest things I noticed was something I call tactile affirmation. In other words, it was mostly white female teachers who were working with these five-year-old kids in kindergarten. And when, when white kids would do say something good or answer the question, they would literally get up from their desk and go affirm them, touch them on the shoulder, say, good job, touch them on the head, you know, things of that nature. With black and brown kids, they'd look from their chair and say, well, you know, that's the correct answer and kind of move on. And these were white liberal women. These were not you know, overtly, you know, white supremacists, you know, kind of these were liberal white women who, if you challenged them, which I did on their behavior, they were shocked yes. and would immediately deny that that took place. But and, that, I've, and I've had that actually. And that's why I said um, it's everywhere. Yeah, because I had this at a, a particular school that we started off at school here for my son. And, um, you know, I got very emotional because I'm like, you know, I know that he's a smart kid. He's. He's, he, he has lots of personality, but he was running into things. Mm-hmm. As soon as we took him out of that school, do you know he's excelling? Everybody's exactly. how great he is in math, how mm-hmm. smart he is. They can't believe he's a he's a young learner because he started early because he has a um, he's yeah. born in June. It just shows, and and but then again, this woman is from Britain, so it's mm. not really from the Dutch culture. Well, here's what okay. I think. So, okay, so we we've talked about the problem. And and there 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 is the problem. We we all know it. Right. We live it. Right. It's not. And it, we've lived it for our parents have lived it. Our right. parents right. parents have lived it. What is the solution? Or what 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 can we do to try to find a solution to this? I think one of the things you said you did was actually go up to the teacher and she wasn't aware. It was that self awareness that she hadn't experienced. She didn't realize that mm. self self actualization. She didn't realize she was acting out. Which she probably was against, based on her being liberal, or mm, or maybe she wasn't against it. But he said these were liberal people. But I'm just wondering, what is it that what 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 in your studies helps change this? Is it getting to the roots of our mindset on how we perceive it, our, our awareness, 
or is it trying to create change other places? Well, I, I think you, you, we have to have a multi-pronged approach. I mean, ideally, schools that we're able to create would, would, you know, would have a great deal of impact. But, you know, a large part of the problem is we lack capital. We lack the means to, to you know, really compete, you know, with a, with a private school system, with a public school system. So you'll find, you know, schools here and there, but they're usually struggling financially. You know, those are that. But that is a solution. Another is that if you have to have your child like I did in a school system that is not targeted at, you know, affirming him or her, then you have to advocate. And, and and if you don't have the time based on the type of labor you're doing, you know, even working with other parents or community rec- activists, you know, finding ways to keep somebody actively involved. Because what I noticed was that these schools and this is even when I was in school, um, these schools really kind of had their way with black kids who didn't have representation, whether it was how they graded assignments, how they treated them in the class. Uh, even when you gave the example about your sons, I mean, I'm what I'm hearing is the difference when in an environment that's affirming versus an environment that isn't. And that has a great deal of impact on anybody, let alone children. I mean, when I talked about tactile affirmation, you should have seen how these kids would light up at being. Now, remember, they're five, right? You know, clearly in high school, you, don't, you know, people don't really necessarily want their teachers getting up and touching them. But. At five years old, that was a big deal. And you can see the difference in their personalities over the course of, say, a year. But in terms of my experience, one of the things I again, I was developing black masculinism during this time because I didn't recognize or I should say it took me a while to better understand how my own race and gender was was, you know, interpreted in those environments. So, for example, if I got upset with the teacher and how she treated at how she treated my son. My frustration, even if just a look on my face, was taken in with far more um, fear than others. So campus security or the police could be called because of the look I have on my face. If I have a scheduled meeting with the principal after having a conversation with the teacher where I'm unhappy about something, there's noticeably a police car or campus security on location by the time I get there. You know, things of that nature. And that became something I was – I won't say completely unprepared for, but I just hadn't processed in in, in full as a parent advocating for my child. And right? I think, think that you think that also we. I think we. One thing I have to say about uh, blacks and, and, and people of diversity, you you think that after you've reached a certain point and you've proven yourself and constantly prove yourself that the acceptance will come, and mm-hmm. the doesn't come sometimes and you're constantly proving yourself and then there's these little things like a police car coming up and you're like what mm-hmm. fight this mm-hmm. person I disagree with you Absolutely. Or, or you know i'm or, you know it's like those type of things and you're just like wow i got it hasn't gone on. no and I've, I've i've seen by third grade my son was completely segregated from the rest of the class even though he was one of the top three performing you know children in the room he's sat he was forced to sit in the back of the room by himself and i would come in and you know when i would get upset they would you know they stopped hearing what i was saying and it just became about how fearful i was and i actually had a significant other come up and she was able as you know as a black woman to make the point you know and it wasn't to say that black women aren't feared but it is to say there's a difference in terms of the stigma 
Right. And so they were able to actually hear her when she would speak adamantly about how he was treated. And that kind of opened some doors for options. But when I said it, it was, you know, do we have to be mindful that he's a threat? You know, and so that kind of dynamic is something I had to consider. Even the relationships with other kids, you know, most of the time it wasn't the fathers who were coming up. It was the mothers coming to the schools. So there's a whole dynamic about you know, single men and married, you know, mothers and, and the, you know, so there's not a lot of interaction <laughs> being that way. And my child ended up kind of, but all I'm saying is that, you know, really trying to process how black men are received in different contexts is, is what I'm trying to do in my quest to humanize black men. And that is to bring up conversations that we don't often have. What is it like to be a black father bringing your child up to the elementary school and even socializing with other parents is kind of stigmatized because that can be misconstrued, you know, single man, married woman. You'd be surprised how much just that dynamic affects how you're able to navigate the school and how it affects whether or not your child gets invited to birthday parties or events, all of those subtle things, because really those are spaces that are pretty much run by women. So when you're a man in that space, you navigate it differently. But I didn't know that. Nobody had really ever told me. And I never really fully understand understood the ramifications of that and how it could affect my son. So all of those things are conversations I want to have just to open that discussion up and look at how we function in different spaces. You know, you're, you're so right. And I experienced that as even though I'm not a black male, <laughs> definitely, mm-hmm. you know, but um, I experienced that as a single mom, too, whereas uh, women the threat of having a single mom around their husbands or at the activity. <laughs> right, you know, right. Okay, so are, are she's a single mom, more than likely her daughter won't succeed. Mm. Do I really want her socializing with my child? Or and, and, and when they met me and they realized, wow, you know, this woman has it together, it was a shock. And I had people come up to me, especially white men, who mm-hmm. probably had the conversation with their white women wives and say, Oh my God, you know what? Why aren't black men with you? I can't understand what black men are the ones that are the problem. Here's this perfect person. There's no one's perfect, but this perfect woman and she's sitting here as a single mother. What, what's wrong with black men? So again, I was, I had to defend my men based on my situation, which was mm-hmm. situational. And, mm-hmm. um, so it, so it's the whole dynamics of, of I, I, and of I that. do I do believe that you as a single parent it's very hard to experience those but I also I don't want to take away from it being sometimes a color issue because I find that for myself you know playdates I you know I'm sometimes one of the youngest moms a lot of the moms mm-hmm. start um, but also I think that. People have the uh, stereotypes or the assumptions. Um, just because I'm fun, they're like, oh, you're adopted. Oh. Hmm. And, and, you know, the things that you feel like you have to explain yourself where I don't know if that would happen if you weren't of color. So hmm. I, that's why I prepare my children early on that they have to be a step ahead mm-hmm. and, and get a grade higher than an A. Right. <laughs> So let me ask you this again. Back to the question. Right. So how the conversation is is what we feel and you feel that would help change some things, right? Um, and um, how are we? How how can we bridge this conversation? Do you have any? Um, I know we 
one person alone, it's hard for you to do it all. Do you have any type of, um, uh, uh, what is it called, um, advocacy that you're doing where yes. you get people, other people, yeah. or uh, anything you'd like to share that, or, that can know. make great change or behind all this or how can we get this this conversation out i think i'm at you we're at a very elementary stage in a particular way um where a lot of my work is about creating the language and i mean that literally developing new terms so that black men can articulate and express themselves and be understood and have some context for it um because we haven't had it i mean we we got to remember you know, we've had several overlapping women's movements. There hasn't really been a men's movement, let alone a black men's movement that was really targeted at black manhood and the issues that go on with it. So because of that, women were able to really develop a vocabulary um, that, you know, really fixated on explaining women's experiences. And men for the last several decades have been grappling with the throes of what that's meant, but not necessarily having a language to respond in kind and say, well, these are the things that I experience. So a lot of my work at this stage is about literally creating that vocabulary. Now, the other thing I'm trying to do, as well as a small collective of others, black male academics, is create a, you know, a subfield of Africana studies called black male studies that actually looks at the mechanics of black manhood, boyhood, what those experiences are, and do so with an empirical base. Because so many people are comfortable, and I mean academics, at conferences. I just talked about this on my show yesterday. I've been to conferences at, you know, where academics are talking about black males, but they're only doing so from a off, you know, a personal perspective, what happened with my nephew, my cousin's daughter, I mean, my cousin's son or whatever. And, and these are, these are considered acceptable conversations in an academic setting. And yet, you know, when it comes to women and girls, there's, 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 you know, far more nuance, but black boys and men can just be discussed offhand and anybody's personal experience can now serve as, you know, empirical evidence for something. And, and when it comes to black males, that's acceptable. So there's a collective of us trying to create a, you know, a new field so that we can explore this in depth and really get at you know, the basis of and the histories behind how many of these things have come to, to, come to pass and, and really to parse out what's true from what isn't. And, you know, and, and so that's in terms of that, that's where, you know, my work is at this point. It's developing the vocabulary and pushing for a field where people can actually begin to develop this. But it's difficult to do because the numbers of black males in, you know, in the academy as a whole are, are really small. Um, and because of that, it becomes very difficult to get into a position to speak, especially if you're not tenured and you're 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 working in a context that. Uh, put makes you subject to those who don't like what you have to say by by featuring black males. And so your job becomes, you know, kind of questionable out of the gate if you're overtly talking about black males. And so many black male scholars don't do it. Or if they do, they do it from very safe positions, but they don't get their hands dirty because you got to worry about whether or not you, you'll be able to keep your job. So maybe some type of advocacy on the side. Uh, of that, uh, you know, not definitely, just, you know, doing something, um, a movement outside of that. And I think, I think um, one of the, it's almost like my, the mindfulness movement, right? Um, there were a few people that had their hands in that and it grew to be this huge, um, huge, a huge movement that's really being accepted even in the corporate sector. And I think developing safe curriculum 
Mm-hmm. You know, again, I think that one of the things that uh, we all know the problem, but I think having a solution is the thing to really. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sorry we're getting ready to close. I'm have to bring you back on, Doctor T. Sure. Dr. J- I mean, Dr. T. Dr. Johnson, so we can talk about this. But um, let me know, uh, let the listeners know where they can find out more about your blog, where they can find out more about you, and be able to kind of, if they're interested, join this movement and help support. Well, sure. You can find me at www.thasanjohnson.com, thasanjohnson.com. You can also check my show out. You know, um, here on Interlight Radio every first and third Wednesday from uh, five o'clock uh, uh, Pacific. Uh, it's called The Onyx Report with Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. So you can check me out there. And of course, my blog at newblackmasculinities.wordpress.com. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Johnson. For thank you. And enlightening us on the subject. I mean, you have some powerful information that. Definitely um, does strike a chord, not just because I have sons, but also for the future of black masculinity. Well, much appreciated for having me. Okay, take care. All right, have a great night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Wow, you know, I'm actually very inspired um, about all that he's doing. And I'm um, I'm looking forward to sharing this going on. So, you guys, thank you so much. Um, for for being the show. show. Um, if you want to reach us, you can always go to write the number two at strategicladies.com and uh, follow us on strategicladies.com, www.strategicladies.com. Have a wonderful day. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks. Empower. Empower. Strategic Ladies.